chapter 7 and verse 37. In the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. It doesn't mean he had tears, but it meant he yelled out. This was not a quiet uh, speech. He got everybody's attention. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This was a promise. If anyone says that the Holy Ghost, and and you have to be careful because we understand that the very presence of God is the Holy Spirit. We know that. But but just, just be careful that you don't get caught up in saying, well... You know, the book of Acts, it's really no different than anything else. It's just kind of a part. No, it's very different. Something happened in the book of Acts that had never happened before. And so it, it wasn't present. It's the same God. It's the same touch. But, but it had not come. And here's your proof right there. Jesus stood up and said, there will be a time that your thirst will be quenched. And that, that you don't no longer have to be in the desert, in the dry places anymore. For at that point, not only will you drink, but and, and we don't use this language, it's kind of weird, but just understand the analogy. Not only will you drink and you not thirst, but you'll drink so much that it's going to come out your belly like a river of living water. It's the Holy Ghost. What you're feeling right now as I stood up here, and, and, and I hope you don't mind. I, I, I just kind of don't like to focus on you during the worship. I know you look pretty and you look nice and you, you dressed up and you're here with your family, and I'm glad you're here and I saw you. But what I like to do is just lift my hands and give God praise. So I like when I close my eyes and, and I just focus on Him. Why? Because there is a, 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 when I'm dry and when I'm thirsty and when my spirit is weak, I can come into his presence and that living water flows. I watched as tears rolled down some of your eyes. I watched as just that, that smile, that heavenly smile of, Lord, you've been so incredible to me, was present. And, and that's what it really means to step into his glory. And I'm so thankful that you're here. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me as I get to my text. I want to invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to take this a little bit opposite direction. I I, I understand that God is here and the presence of God is here. And some of you, you you're in the flow, if I can use that. The Spirit is moving all over you, and and I want that to continue. But I I need to take it a different direction for a moment. Because for some of you, the flow isn't there. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert. Now we're going to at the very end of my sermon, I'm going to come back to that. Remember that, the heath in the desert. And shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land not inhabited. So let's just recap for just a moment. Cursed is the man who has lost faith and trust in God 
and believes that everything happens through the arm of the flesh. Basically, I trust in just myself and, and that and my heart's departed from the Lord. If you do that, you're going to be like the heath in the desert. You see that word desert? You're not going to see the good cometh. You're going to be in the parched places. That's another type of desert. You're going to be in the salt land. Think of the great salt lake and those salt flats. There's nothing growing there. But blessed is the man. Here's the change. Blessed is the man that is trusteth in the Lord whose hope the Lord is for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when the heat cometh but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought neither shall cease from yielding fruit if you trust in the Lord even when the dry places come you're anchored deep enough down into the well of living water that the dry places can come and you can still uh, bear fruit even if around you seems dry. And I want to preach to you today the danger of the dearth. The danger of dearth. I want to ask you to close your Bibles or put a finger in it. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to ask the word of the Lord. I say, God, would you let it speak to me right now? Father, I am so thankful for the worship that this congregation has brought forth. I am so thankful for the manifestation of your glory and your power that is present in this place. But now we need your word. We have felt your touch. We have felt your presence. There has been a move of your spirit. But God, I need your word. Your word is alive. Your word is what changes us. Your word is what we receive. And it, it, it leads us to a place of salvation. We have to have the word. Speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can be seated in Jesus' name. The danger of the dearth. Give me a little bit of time to just kind of uh, wax personal. How many of you, even if you don't have it written down, how many of you have a mental bucket list? Everybody know what a bucket list is? It's things you want to do before you kick the bucket. All right? See, you know what's cool about growing up? Now, we... We use a lot of these terms, and especially uh, some of you young people, I've seen you use it, young adults, and we talk about adulting, and adulting is hard, and yeah, I hate paying the bills, and you know, I hate the stress that comes along with that, and it was nice when I lived with my mom and dad because I didn't really have that, and I could drive their car, and if it broke down, they fixed it, and not so much like I do when my car breaks down, and you either, hopefully, you have the money to fix it, or sometimes your car sits for a week or so until a paycheck comes, and yeah, adulting's hard, but you know what I like about being an adult? All the things I wanted to do as a kid, I can do them now. I haven't done it yet. My mama said I couldn't skydive. I want to, but now I have a wife, and she won't let me skydive. So I guess some things never change. But in my life, I, 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 I grew up reading. I love to read. And, and I, I think there's some, some cool things that happen when you really get your children involved in reading and, and so my imagination can take me places. And, and I was okay with reading, uh, uh, you know, something that wasn't just a story. I liked the history. Now, sometimes they fictionalized the stories, but I grew up on Kit Carson. I grew up on Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett. And, and I, I grew up on, on Abraham Lincoln and, and, and Ulysses S. Grant. I grew up on people like George Patton and, and Douglas MacArthur and reading these stories of these men and seeing in their life. And so it created in me a desire to experience life to its fullest. And so I have a mental bucket list. And my, my wife, my wife she, she'll be here in a sec. But, but if you ask my wife, she says that 
I have a short attention span, and so I'll start a hobby, and then I get done with it, and, and I start a new hobby, and there might be a little truth in that, but I'd rather tell it to you like this. It's because I want to experience the bucket list things, and once I've experienced them, I don't have to do them forever. But uh, my great uncle, I call him an uncle, he really wasn't a blood relative at all, wasn't even a relative by marriage, but in the small town of De Quincey, Louisiana, everybody seemed to be related somehow, and it was just easier to call him Uncle Alan and Aunt Jean. Aunt Jean played the piano for years and years, and, and uh, uh, my dad even took piano lessons from her. But I, I remember we would go every once in a while to Uncle Alan's house, he was a cowboy, he could rope and ride, he had cows and horses and all of that and and he enjoyed it but he had bees and bees fascinate me in the later years of my cousin uh, my, my cousin Royce when he got to be a teenager he started to uh, help my uncle Alan there and he began to learn about the bees and what it took to raise those bees and then when my uncle Alan passed away he gave those beehives to uh, my cousin, and he continued to work them and harvest the honey every year. For the last several years, I've watched my, uh, my cousin, and, and I've talked to him about the process of beekeeping. It was something that's always interested me. And so this year, in that week that my grandfather passed away, and we were down there, and we would spend time with family sitting around, I got to talk to my cousin Royce a little bit more. In fact, one night, we were eating at a family friend's house, They'd got all the Buford family there, and we were just kind of spending a, a quiet time eating. It was outside. It was a pretty day. And uh, there happened to be in the yard of this, of this family's house a wild bee tree. And it was actually close to the, to the bottom, and you could see where the bees are coming in and out. There were thousands of them. And so I sat for about an hour right around the bottom of that bee tree with my cousin Royce. Zoe was there. You can see it on Facebook if you remember. And Royce taught me a lot about the bees. He taught me that they don't want to sting you. They really are not, uh, unless you're getting the African bees, they're not uh, those, those, you know, what we call killer bees. Those uh, Africanized bees, those are the ones that get vicious, but normal bees don't. And so you would see pictures if you were following me on Facebook. You saw a video where a bunch of bees are on the side of that tree and Zoe's able to just take her hand and run it through those bees. And we learned a lot. Long story short, much to my wife's chagrin, when we came home from that, that trip, I brought home a brand new beehive that I had to put together. And with the joys of social media, with the connection you can make now, by the time we arrived home, I'd already made contact with a guy that was removing a hive, a beehive, from a house. And so it was that on June the 11th, 2017 of this year, he and I took that, that cutout that he had cut out of that house along with the honeycomb and the bees, and we put it in my hive, and so for the last uh, month and a half, I've had a beehive, and it's been awesome. I have a very calm hive. It's pretty cool. Uh, Friday afternoon, I was out there, and I can take that hive apart, and I can pull the frames out. I don't even wear a bee suit. I don't have to wear a, a, a veil. I can just, it's kind of neat. I've enjoyed doing that. Bees are fascinating creatures. Did you know that there are three types of bees in that hive? There's a queen, one queen usually. There's workers by the thousands, and there's a few hundred drones. Each day, that queen will lay some 800 to 1,500 eggs in one day. She'll live around three or four years. They can fly at 15 miles an hour. 
The reason you hear the buzz is because those wings sometimes are flapping over 11,000 times a minute. They actually have four wings. They're the only insect that produces food that you and I as humans will eat. They can travel up to three miles from their hive a day. Those bees never sleep. A, A good hive, a good community, and I'm getting somewhere. A good hive, a healthy hive, will have in it some forty to 60,000 bees in one community. In that hive, those bees can maintain a temperature of 92 to 93 degrees. It doesn't matter if it's 30 degrees outside or if it's 110 degrees. They have a way of regulating the temperature. They will bring water into the hive when it's really hot. They will coat the sides of that hive with water and they will fan their wings and create their own air conditioning to bring down the temperature. But, but I want to get somewhere, and I gotta, I've got to explain it in the natural before we can get to it in the spiritual. A healthy beehive, they only eat two things. They either eat pollen as a, as a baby bee, or they eat uh, uh, honey as a mature bee. A healthy beehive, those that have 40,000 to 60,000 bees, in one year they will consume 80 to 130 pounds of honey a year. Just those little bees. But in order to produce, now let me just blow your mind for a second, in order to produce one pound of honey, two million flowers have to be visited. That hive of bees, that 40 to 60,000 bees, they will have to fly a corporate 55,000 miles or more to produce that one pound of honey. That one colony of bees will produce in a year 60 to 120 pounds of honey. Yet the average worker in its lifetime will only make one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. And all of that is done in 13 to 20 days. That one-twelfth of a teaspoon is all that bee will make in his lifetime. So it takes 500 bees to make 16 ounces of honey. Now lest you think that I'm giving you a biology lesson, and I am, a biology lesson on the importance of bees, there is a spiritual lesson. And I think if Jesus could use trees and fig trees and planting and growth, then I believe we can find parables inside of this. And I felt the Lord speak to me a couple weeks ago about this crucial element in a bee's life. See, here's the thing. Do you catch the fact that bees absolutely need honey to survive? Thank you. I know I'm not real spiritual, but you can at least say yes instead of amen for a moment. Those honey and pollen really only comes from one type of source, and that is flowers. Within the bee community, there's a word that is used to describe how and when a bee can produce honey, and it's called the flow or the honey flow. This is what the definition of a honey flow is. It's the name that comes from the fact that bees will have the access to resources allowing them to dramatically accelerate the creation of honey within the hive. So the honey flow is less about honey actually flowing and more about bees having ready access to nectar that will support them in creating huge volumes of honey. See, they need, it's not just one plant. 
I know you want to take care of the bees and you've got that little garden and so you plant that one plant. That's great. That one plant that, that you know, is one of those bee plants or whatever it is, that one plant might give a three or four bees enough nectar for one day and then it's, it's not much left after that. They need acres and acres and acres to support them. And so a beekeeper, and I'm learning this as we go, a beekeeper begins to watch for the flow. The flow is contingent on a few things. First off, is there flowers blooming around them that have suitable nectar and pollen for the bees? And the second is, is the weather conducive to bees flying? Meaning there's not a lot of high winds, there's not any rain or maybe extreme high temperatures. They tell me that when all of those are right, when that flow is on, when the flowers are blooming and the weather is perfect, a beehive can produce five pounds of honey a day. I want you to see this picture one more time. It's the, uh, of the beehives. There's four or five of them. Those are not mine. Uh, but that's what they call a Landstroth hive. Those hives, they have boxes. And those boxes each have ten frames. And you take a frame of honey one frame, there's ten of them in each of those boxes, one frame of honeycomb that's filled with honey can weigh anything from seven to ten pounds, which means that each box of ten frames of honey, when they pull it at the time, they will get seventy to a hundred pounds of honey out of one box. And most beekeepers, if everything's going right, they're going to have about three or four boxes of honey on each hive that they can pull. Everything seems good, right? How many of you like honey? Yeah. Everything seems perfect. The bees are good. You just heard pastor say he doesn't need any protective suit. I've only been stung once and it was the day we put the bees in because I got to talking too much and I sucked a bee in my mouth when I took a breath and it stung me right on the inside of the lip and I looked a little funny. But other than that, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. It seems perfect. The flow seems good, but it's not that easy. Because sometimes, along with that flow, what is the flow? The flow is when the flowers are blooming and the weather's perfect. Along with that flow, invariably comes a time in that bee's life where the flowers aren't blooming. By the way, this is where we are right now in, in, in St. Louis. Have you noticed, I, I tend to live a little bit out in Winsfield, so I get to see a little bit more country than perhaps some of you that live more in the city, but have you noticed there's not a lot of flowers blooming right now? Even the clover is kind of wilting and dying up. There, you, you drive down the country roads, you look in your yard, there's nothing happening. It's called the dearth. The dearth is a period of time and it, it, it really, it, it depends completely on the weather. It depends completely on the rain. But there is a dearth. And I want to tell you something I read and then we're going to get very spiritual. But I, I was studying this out because I was asking, I've got a, a mentor that's helping me get my beehive going. And so when something happens I don't understand, I give him a call, I take a picture of it. And so I begin to study and, and, and begin to look and there are some things that begin to happen when bees go into a dearth period. That dearth is usually, again, you, you will find there, there's nothing blooming. There, there's no source of pollen. There's no source of nectar. I read this article uh, that, that, that was by a guy named Rusty, and it's, it's off of a, a beekeeping site called Honey Bee Sweet. 
And this is what he said. He said over the years, he's recognized behaviors of, of, of hives and places that are in a dearth. The first thing is, they sound different. If you walk up to a hive, uh, you don't hear a lot of sound, but during the dearth, it's louder. Uh, I'm not suggesting you do this, but I'll, have, I'll walk up to the hive and I'll, I'll, I'll open up the top and it's pretty quiet. I can see them. And every once in a while I've dropped something. I'll, I have a, a tool that pops the lid off and I've dropped that on top. Or you shake the box and it sounds like, zzz, I mean hornets just, just going. And it's because they don't like what just happened. And so one of the first things an experienced beekeeper will say is when there is a dearth going on, they sound different. They sound disturbed. They'll just kind of mill around the outside of the hive. The second thing that begins to happen in a dearth uh, uh, with those honeybees is they start visiting flowers they normally would avoid. Because there are certain flowers that work well for bees. Then there's other flowers that the bee's anatomy is not properly formated to get that. That's why some flowers work better for moths or butterflies, others for bees. But experienced beekeepers have found that when there is a dearth, they go to flowers they usually avoided. They keep going back. They keep going back to flowers that they've already sucked the nectar from. Now some flowers, those nectar, they can, they can re uh, regenerate nectar in an hour some of them takes a day or so but you'll see a bee and they've done tests you can put a little dot on a bee I don't know if you could see it there in some of those pictures you would have seen a bee that had a red mark on her back that's my queen it's been marked and uh, it's, it's right there you can see when, and, and they've, they've noticed bees they'll go back even though there's nothing in the flower when, the, when a hive is in a, a, a dearth they begin to fight and rob each other There'll be bees from another hive that, that get hungry or, or maybe they're just irritated and they'll come to my hive or they'll come to another hive and they'll fight. You'll literally see bees wrestling on the, on the little landing pad in front of that hive. They'll throw the bees to the ground. They'll kill each other because they're trying to steal the honey that's been in that hive. The second, or, or, or rather the, uh, the fifth thing that beekeepers begin to realize when they are in a dearth is their bees get more defensive. Now, we've been in a dearth, and, and, and I, I like to live on the edge, you know. Since my wife won't let me skydive, as I said earlier, I have to do something. And so I, I have, up to this point, knowing full well I'm in a dearth, I have still approached my beehive without my veil. And I know one day I'm going to get to this place where those bees are just mad. And I'm going to come to church looking lumpy. But bees that were so gentle suddenly displays an impatience with the beekeeper. And they start stinging when they've never stung before. It's because there's a dearth. Something else that they begin to notice when there's a dearth is bees start dumpster diving. Instead of hanging around the flowers because there are no flowers, they start hanging around the trash cans where those old Coke cans and those old syrup bottles are. And they start eating the, the syrup off of those things because there is a dearth going on. They'll be in weird places. You'll find a bee on the side of the house and another one crawling up a water bottle and another just kind of on your antenna and it just doesn't make any sense. Those bees have nowhere to go. They're bored. They're bewildered. That's a bee pun. <laughs> Poor Jared. He's not up here. Somebody use it on Jared. He likes puns. But I will tell you, you have to beware 
of telling Jared or it might go a little further. But those bees, they, they don't know what to do with themselves because there's nothing going on. They're in a dearth. Now, some of you, your minds think kind of fast. And some of you, you already know where I'm going. But can I tell you that we can re-examine those observations in relation to our spiritual life. Now later, just so you know where I'm going, I would like to tell you that there should never be a dearth in your spiritual life. There should never be a time, there should never be a place where you are meant or you are spiritually drained and dry and desiccated. Why do I know that? Because he said out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. There should never be a spiritual desert in your life. There should never be a moment where God's glory and God's spirit and God's power is not moving in you. But I have lived long enough. It'll be 38 years this year. I have lived long enough to realize this. That because of our own stupidity, because of our own uh, uh, unfaithfulness, because of our own just we have to do things our way, we experience spiritual dearths. If you have ever said, I don't feel God, you're in a spiritual dearth. If you've ever been in a service and you just did not, could not, didn't want to worship God, you are in a spiritual dearth. If you haven't been reading your Bible or or praying, if, if there's nothing spiritually being put in you, you are in a spiritual dearth. If you just stop coming to church, you're in a spiritual dearth. Dearth. If you come to church but mentally check out, you're in a spiritual dearth. And I'm going to take from Rusty's and his observations because when I looked at that, I was laying in bed one night and, and, and as I'm prone to do, my brain was going here and there and I was thinking about my bees and, and, and that word dearth, I had heard it before as my cousin Royce had told me a little bit about it. And right then I heard the Lord just kind of, it, it, was, it was as clear as day. He said, Brandon, are you in a spiritual dearth? You ever had God speak to you like that? Not audibly, but I mean it's as if you had the just vivid image of that voice and I just had to stop. I was laying in bed, I just stopped for a minute. And then instantly I said, well, I need to know more about the dearth. And so I, I got on my phone and all I did is I said, what happens during a dearth? And that, that eight or nine things that I read from Rusty at B-Suite uh, came up. And instantly God said, you know, one of the first things I notice when someone is in a spiritual dearth is they get louder and more disturbed. It didn't take Israel very long to get out of the flow. Downstairs in our children's department, they've been going over this summer. They've been, it's called Pharaoh Fufu or Fufu Pharaoh or whatever it is. And they've been having fun. Sorry, I I try and do that off the cuff. But they've had a lot of fun down there. And they've been doing the story of Moses and Pharaoh and the ten plagues and and, and the ten commandments. And man, I've, I've gone down there sometimes during the worship. They're having a blast. But it didn't take Israel very long to walk out of Egypt's land free and no longer a slave. In fact, it took them less than three days from leaving their bondage to grumbling 
They got disturbed. They were out of the flow. And they grumbled about the lack of drinking water. And they grumbled about what they were going to eat. And they got mad at Moses. And they built golden calves. And one thing I have learned is that when I start hearing myself or anybody else start grumbling and mumbling and buzzing around, probably you're in a spiritual dearth. As a pastor, when I start seeing saints on flowers they normally would avoid, I start saying, God, help them. They're in a spiritual dearth. It's amazing how that goes. Samson is a prime example, and I don't have time to go through all of Samson's life, and so you're going to have to let me just kind of bring you there and I'm going to trust you to either know the story of Samson or you can go look it up in the book of of, uh, Judges but did you know that there were three times in Samson's life, now we always talk about Samson and Delilah, we know that but did you know there were three times in Samson's life that he visited he went to sample the forbidden fruit of a Philistine woman Samson was an Israelite We're, we're just years removed from uh, 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 the, the, the wilderness and coming into the promised land but the problem with Samson was even though the word of God said don't go to, the, to those women they're, they're nothing but trouble Samson said I like this Philistine woman dad I want you to make her my wife and dad said that's not right and Samson cried and pitched a fit you can read it in Buford's version of the Bible it says that Samson made his voice very loud and his daddy backed down my God, how much could I preach right now about parents that back down because their kid got a little loud? But if you do that, you're going to be in a spiritual dearth. Samson went to that first Philistine woman, married her in an elaborate ceremony, got mad because, of course, you were with the enemy, got mad, left her, went back to daddy's house, and, and never even consummated the marriage. Then he burned all their crops down. He got jackals or foxes and tied their tails together and put a firebrand in the middle of them. You'd think Samson would have learned his lesson, but no. Samson was in a spiritual dearth for most of his life. Nothing flowing in. Nothing coming in. He knew what he should do, but there was no no discipline. There was no spiritual disciplines in his life. And so a little bit later in Samson's life, he went and visited a prostitute there in the Philistines' garrison. And, And that's when Samson got caught behind the gate and had to rip the whole gate up and carry it off. And then that third time he went to a flower he should have avoided was when he got involved in Delilah. It was funny today, as I was writing my notes, I was writing it down and I said he married Delilah and Caused me to go back. He didn't marry Delilah. It was another forbidden fruit. When you see bees on flowers, they normally avoid. They're in a spiritual dearth. Bees will resample those flowers. I want you to listen to every one of you very carefully. I am so absolutely thankful for everything that God has done in my life. 
I'm a blessed person. I could spend days and months and probably years telling you everything that God has done. But I cannot exist on the leftovers of a life that God touched last year or the year before or 20 years ago. I can't go back and try to resample a flower. You can't go back to a message. You can't go back to a pastor. You can't go back to a church service. You've tried it. You've gotten what you need. But I'm telling you, don't keep looking back into the past for God to give you something. You don't need to be in a spiritual dearth. You need something new right now. You need something fresh right now. Those bees, they're hungry. They're in a dearth. There's no life in them. There's nothing moving. And they go back to a flower and this is what they say. Now, Brother Perryman, you'll enjoy this because you and I like to fish. We like to hunt. Brother Cozart's teaching or, or whatever he's doing, and, and we've had this conversation. We get caught up in our ways. We caught a fish 19 years ago under this log, and we're going to go back to that same log every time we fish, and we've never caught another fish under that log. I, I love Brother Cozart, but he loves doing that. 20 years ago, I caught a 30-pound catfish out of there. Not even the log anymore. <laughs> Funny. Hey, pastor. I remember 30 years ago, I came to a church service, and man, that pastor was preaching, and God touched me, and I wish I could go back there. No, you don't. No, you don't. I want to come to a church service right now and I want a fresh fly. It's the same nectar. It's the same word. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if you haven't tasted and seen what the Lord is doing right now, you're in a spiritual dearth. Those past experiences cannot sustain me without a continual flow of God's Spirit in my life. In fact, I want to show you a video that played. I want to show you the opposite of drinking from flowers that sustained you in the past. I'm guessing they're probably not even chaperones. For those of you that don't know, you heard our, our youth pastor, Brother Justin, as he led that last song, he made mention of it. And tonight, we're going to let our young people take some time to tell you about what God has done. This was an incredible event, and it's the largest event that, that the apostolic churches of any denomination has ever had. Over 34,000 people met in the Indianapolis Colts Stadium for church Wednesday night, Thursday morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, Friday night. What you just saw, I know that was not their type of music. Trust me. 
I may not have the gift of prophecy, but I'm that smart to know that's not their normal uh, worship set on their record player when they get home to their house. But what I saw was some elders that says, I need a touch right now. And sometimes I worship leaning on my staff. And sometimes I worship getting up on my walker. But God, I don't care what music it is. I don't care who's preaching. I don't care what church service it is. God, I need a new thing right now. I need a new flower right now. I need a flow of your spirit right now. That's the danger of the dearth when there's nothing flowing and you keep living in the past. <laughs> James chapter 4 and verse 1 says, From where does wars and fighting come among you? Where do they even come? Even your lusts that war in your members. You lust, you covet, you're jealous and you don't have. You kill and desire to have and you still can't obtain. You fight and you war yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you could consume it on your lusts. He says, uh, don't you remember the spirit that says, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee to you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And let me tell you this, I'll tell you another way that I as a, as a pastor can tell when there is a spiritual dearth happening. Robbing and fighting and jealousy begins to rear its head. Someone says, I don't know why they're clapping their hands. I don't know why they're worshiping. I, I don't know what gives them the right to get all excited in a church service. And that lust and that desire and that covetousness comes. It's because of a dearth and fighting and robbing and tussling begins to happen. Adam and Eve sins. God comes down as he did every day, it seems. Adam, where are you? They're hiding. It's, it's nothing, crickets. And, and in my, it's kind of like you playing hide and go seek with your own kids. You know exactly where they are because you can see their feet underneath the, the curtain. And so you're going around, I wonder where you are. I wonder where you are. And then all of a sudden you get to where they are and you pull back the curtain and you go, oh, that's where you are. In my mind, that's what God did. I wonder where you are, Adam. Are you? Nope, you're not over here. Are you over? Nope, you're not over here. And he pulls back a bough of a tree. And there is Adam and Eve cowering down in their own uh, righteous garments that they've tried to create. God says, what did you do, Adam? <laughs> it wasn't me, God. It was the woman you gave me. Hey, Saul, King Saul, what's this I hear? Why do I hear the lowing of cattle? Why do I hear people talking? And Saul goes, oh, wait a second, Samuel. It, 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 here's what it is. Let, let me explain to you. What it is, I only kept alive the very best so I could sacrifice it to the Lord who commanded me to kill everything in the first place. Disciples, 
tonight, one of you will betray me. Disciples, tonight, one of you will deny me even three times when that rooster crows. Judas just ran out and left it hanging. Peter gets all defensive and says, I don't know what you're talking about, God. I know you can do everything, but you're obviously wrong on this one. I will never deny you. I could never deny you. I'm your greatest follower. One of the ways I can look at a spiritual dearth is when someone begins to get defensive towards the word of God that begins to go forth. Those bees... Right now, my bees are kind of okay with me opening up the hive. I, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm reading a little bit too far, but every time I open up the hive, I get some trash out of the hive. I kill these little hive beetles that are in these hives that the bees do a good job keeping them in the corner, and they kind of round them up. But I'd like to think those bees and whatever little brain they have go, man, it's kind of nice when this dude opens up the hive and smashes all these pests. But when they get into a dearth... They don't understand what the beekeeper's doing. They don't understand that the beekeeper's making sure they haven't run out of room. Is it time to put another box on top? Is it time to, to take some out? Is it, is it time to make sure everything is going? And they become defensive and they get impatient with the beekeeper. And I, one way that I can find a spiritual dearth is when people get defensive to the word of God and the presence of God. When you're in a spiritual dearth, you start dumpster diving. It's kind of similar to going to the flowers you shouldn't go for you, but it's amazing how many times I can see something, someone hanging out in places he ought not be. Sometimes it's not even a physical place. Sometimes I could look at your internet browsing history and find out when you're in a spiritual dearth or not. I could look at what you read and find out if you're in a spiritual dearth or not. They're just not in the flow, drinking that nasty old syrup off a Coke can in a dumpster when they should have flowers there. Or, or the last one is the bees that investigate promising smells. You ever notice, and, and, and Sister Stacy, I'm looking at you because I've been at camp, you know, Missouri camp with you and and, and my wife and sister Carrie and you get on that golf cart and you're out there in the back 40 watching them play softball and all of a sudden the bees start dive bombing you you know why because it's July and there's a spirit or there's a, a dearth going on July there, there's nothing happening and those 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 bees start smelling your perfume and they go hey that kind of smells like a eucalyptus or whatever perfume you wear I don't know. That was the first smelly plant that came in my mind. You smell like a rose. There you go. You smell like a rose. You smell like lilac. But those bees start investigating smells. And they start going here. And they start going there. 
and they start searching there and they start searching there and when someone is in a spiritual dearth no longer does the word of God suffice they start looking over here and they start searching over there and it's this church and it's that church and it's that place and it's that doctrine until pretty soon you don't even know what you believe anymore because you have gone after every wind of doctrine and I, I read James read first and second John read Jude and understand they were talking about people that were in a spiritual dearth and they no longer let the word of God touch them and they begin to seek after every wind of doctrine carried away like silly women captive after their own lusts And I don't mean silly women to, to make fun of the female gender that's what the word of God said they investigate promising things ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth I have watched people in the space of a few months go from a life filled with the Spirit, a life walking in the flow, a life to following the Bible with everything they've got, to wandering and following every weird and funny and crazy doctrine they can find and invent until finally after a few months they don't even believe there is a God. It's because they were in a spiritual dearth. People who are in a spiritual dearth, they don't know what to do. They just kind of mill around like those bees. One day, if you want, let's not do it during the spiritual during the dearth. But the the, the next phase that's going to happen in in St. Louis is the goldenrod is going to start blooming. The goldenrod, it's that kind of puffy yellow, powdery flower you'll start seeing on the sides of roads. If you go to bush wildlife, it's everywhere in bush wildlife. Any moment now, that's going to start blooming. And it's going to end the dearth in St. Louis. And, and when that starts blooming, you can come out and look at my beehive. And you're going to watch these bees. They're going to come out of that hive and they're going to fly like a rocket. And, and if I could mark them, you'll find they're not having to go very far because there's, there's goldenrod everywhere. And so it, it's, it's, it's just, they've got a purpose. They get the nectar. Bam, they're back. And you're going to see it. It's going to be like a super highway coming out of my hive. But right now, if you're there, those bees just fly around kind of lazily and they kind of hang out because they don't have anything to do. In a spiritual dearth, we just kind of hang around and we never do anything because you haven't found a purpose in his spirit yet. So let's get back to our text. <laughs> that was just my introduction. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Let's get back to our text. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert. Remember I told you I was coming back to this. That heath that Jeremiah refers to, it's a type of juniper plant. And, and it, it's there. And, but yet there's a secondary reference. Because that Hebrew word that describes the heath and describes the juniper plant that Jeremiah uses, it also has another meaning. It means someone who is destitute, needy, lacking. It pertains to a person that is without resources that sounds like a dearth to me and some of you 
you're like the heath in the desert, the parched places of the wilderness, the salt lands, the uninhabited lands. But this morning, I feel like there's those that says that's not who I want to be. I want to be blessed as the man that trusteth in the Lord whose hope the Lord is, who shall be planted like a tree by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat comes and her leaves shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought and now shall never cease from bearing fruit. And the only way you can do that is if you follow what I read to begin with. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, that they which believe on him should receive that Spirit. Hasn't happened yet or had not happened yet there. But because we live post-Acts, it is here. Every one of you today, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, this is only between you and the Lord. If you are living in a spiritual desert, if you are living in a spiritual dearth, if there's no flow, if there's nothing moving in and out of your life, I would like to tell you today that although St. Louis has natural dearths that we cannot change, in God's kingdom, there should never be a moment where you go without His Spirit. What that means is the spiritual dearth is your doing, not his. Are there wilderness experiences? Yes. Are there times where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Yes. But my Bible tells me that even if I have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me. And so today, those bees don't have much of a choice in the natural realm. They have to exist on what they had put in that hive. And, and they're going to have to just hope that, that they don't run out of their honey stores or pollen stores before the dearth ends. But I'm so thankful this analogy is not controlled by the natural. Today, all you have to do is lift up a hand. Say, Lord, whatever reason, I'm dry. Whatever reason, I'm in a dearth. Whatever reason it's been that it's been so long since I felt your presence, today it can cease because I'm going to come into your presence. And I'm going to say, Lord, would you pour your spirit out on me? Lord, would you let that life-giving water that you told the woman at the well, you can drink and never thirst again. God, so I'm going to put myself in your presence. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I'm tired of living in the dearth. I'm tired of living in the desert. I'm tired of living in the desiccated and dry places. I want to live in your spirit. I want to live in the flow. I want to live in the power of your glory and majesty. And God, I need you. I need you. I invite you to stand today right now. I have let the word of God go forth in the best way that I know how. I've tried to preach with everything that's within me what the Lord has laid on my heart. But now it's your turn to go to the flower. He said he's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. Some of you spiritual bees, you need to go and drink from nectar, a well that won't run dry, a a flower that's not touched by the dearth, that's not touched by the, the physical. You can go and drink.
never thirst again. And I'm going to open these altars for whosoever will let them come. If you walk down to this altar, it's not because you're backslidden. It, I don't even know why you're coming down. I, I'm going to say this. If you come down, it's because you want more of his presence. Is that fair enough? Is it alright if I just put the mic down and I walk my own self down to this altar and I say it?